there. Thanks for tuning in. Welcome to the Creative Vault. Come join me on an adventure as we unlock and discover the secrets of creative success. Let's get started. My guest on today's episode is Almira Farid. And before we dive into the meat and potatoes of this episode, I do need to set some context. So we had this conversation in September of 2022, and that was when I was still experimenting and ideating about the platform. So she was one of my first few guests before it even went official. And I can't wait for you to get to know her a little bit better. So I'm going to skip the fluff. Let's jump right into this episode. is a music educator and multi-instrumentalist with a background in ethnomusicology and the creative and cultural industries. Her previous work includes hosting London-based radio program Songs from Southeast Asia, writing for online global music magazine Rhythm Passport, as well as writing for the Esplanade's Bay Beats Budding Writers Programme. Thanks for taking the time to drop by on your off day. It's my pleasure. It's Teacher's Day. Oh, so yes. There's and no off days for teachers, even on Teacher's Day. Oh, God. Oh, so. yeah. Happy happy Teacher's Day. Thank you. To you. you had school celebrations yesterday, right, for Teacher's Day? Yes, How we did. That? So, I'm a primary school music teacher. So, celebrations in the primary school are always lots of fun because uh, I teach the whole school which means almost the whole school gives me gifts. So I just came to you with a bunch of Toblerone because I've got lots of chocolate. Um, but apart from the, the presents, the best things to receive from the kids are really the letters um, and their attempts to draw guitars and ukuleles. I think those are the most heartfelt gifts. Um, yeah, it was fun. And uh, I wish Teacher's Day was every day. It should be. Yeah, <laughs> yeah teachers are very underappreciated for the amount of work and effort and planning that I we say. do, really. How has the evolution of gifts been since the moment you first started teaching? Do you find yourself like getting more letters the more you start to know these students? Well, I've only been teaching for two years, so this is really my second Teacher's Day. But mm. I have already seen an evolution because last year I only taught maybe like three quarters of the school. So the pool of possibility for gifts was a lot smaller. But this year, I think it's also been a while. I've been teaching them for almost two years. And so the letters have become a bit longer. Um, they've become a bit more um, personal. Um, the P5s that I taught last year are now in P6, finishing PSLE. So um, we've developed um, deeper relationships. So yeah, more letters and not so much sweets and chocolate this year. What's the most interesting letter you've gotten? Oh, okay, there's, there's been a ton. But one that comes to mind immediately is this primary two boy. He did not have the guts to give me the present, so his form teacher had to give it to me. He's a very naughty boy most of the time, but he can be quite sweet. 
So it was basically okay. On the the front was a beautifully drawn guitar, which he definitely did not draw himself. I think the mom the mom did it lah. But then inside it was a I thought it was a letter. Then I opened it, and in the letter was actually a bunch of papers. So he basically made me a notebook from scratch. But the form teacher told me that earlier this week she had caught him stealing her recycled paper. And when she was like, "What are you doing, ah, uh, boy?" and she, he was like, "Uh, nothing." And uh, yeah, he basically stole from the school to give back to the school. Oh my god! Yeah. So Recycling I, at its I had, best. I had received stolen, stolen, stolen goods. gifts. <laughs> yeah. you, you're complicit now. You're an accomplice. So in all I asked of this. her, "Hey, do you want it back?" <laughs> so, yeah. But but it's sweet because it shows me he's resourceful and um yeah he's having a good time. I'm having a good time. Oh, so. uh, you you yeah. you are the selected one. He, he's chosen you to be the bearing of the recyclables yeah basically. and then there was another good one there was um, a, a beautiful tissue paper that was molded into a rabbit and the only reason why I know it's a rabbit is because she put eyes and a nose and like two bunny ears but it was just so beautifully done like you know I don't need chocolate and, and gifts and watches I would love a rabbit made out of tissue paper yeah so I always like gifts that are you know just a lot more personal and um, homemade and mm-hmm. uh, yeah yeah Bunny rabbits made out of tissue paper. <laughs> yeah. Definitely memorable. Do you do, do you see now that your teacher's desk full of these? I cleared it out. I cleared it out because I didn't want to come back during the September holidays. I brought three and a half bags like home full of this. Yes. Oh my gosh, yes. So happy Teacher's Day um, to all of our fellow comrades out there. Thank you for your sacrifice. Yes, to I teachers and say... also to people who teach but are not in like school settings. Oh yeah, definitely a very um, giving profession. It can be very exhausting but also very rewarding. But we will uh, get back to that later on. So I think we can just start off like way back when at the very very beginning right? like, right, like like just zoom back to Almira baby Almira born in 96 baby Almira was bald and when baby Almira was born the first comment was that she looked like her grandmother so I don't know whether I don't think so because it was, I was ugly and bald and <laughs> I was born like jaundice so I, had, I was all yellow and stuff oh. so. <laughs> So that was Baby Almira. <laughs> Growing out of jaundice. Yeah, but maybe you can share a little bit more about your parents and their backgrounds and where they came from. Yeah, so musically, I think mm. I'll talk in terms of music. Mm-hmm, musically, mm-hmm. I had a quite an interesting and varied upbringing. So on my mom's side, so her mom, my grandma and my grandfather, so they are Indonesian. Rather, my, my grandma was born in Indonesia, in South Kalimantan, in a place called Bandarmasin. But my grandfather was born in Singapore. Yeah. So anyway, they're, they're Indonesian, very proud of the Indonesian um, cult, culture and all that. So I did grow up learning a lot of folk songs and children's songs and regional songs from Indonesia. Or I guess we call it uh, Lagu Lagu Daerah, regional songs. And then from my dad's side, I... Um, grew up with a lot of Irish and Scottish folk music. Yeah, the idea was that he kept telling us that, oh, your great 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 grandmother is uh, Asian Irish, and so you are one sixteenth Irish. And I mean, oh my god, I think just it, pull out the twenty three yeah, and me like DNA. I think, DNA it, and I think history. a lot of Americans. I think at some point, you know, you're not. Yeah, but anyway, because of that, we did. I, there were lots of songbooks, folk songs from not just uh, Ireland and Scotland, but also mm. from Australia and. English folk songs. So I grew up, that was really my musical childhood. A lot of folk songs from around the world, in a way. 
Yeah, and then on top of that, I I went through a whole series of like learning different instruments. So I started with the violin when I was four or five, and I hated it. I think my teacher was eighteen, and he was so bad with kids. I would cry at every class. So violin didn't work out, even though my mom wanted me to grow up to play Vivaldi and all that. That was not <laughs> happening. So bye bye violin. I cried too much. Then I went on to piano. I really hated piano. Like, my piano teacher would always compare me to my sister, Azura, who was a much better pianist than me. Um, and every time I made a mistake, she would always bang on the right note and be like, this is the right one. So one time she walked out of my class and I, I stuck out my tongue at her. I was just so fed up at being compared. So she walked out and when she came back in, I said, um, oh, it's okay, I don't need to learn piano. I'm going to be a gymnast anyway. Because at the time I was doing gymnastics, I thought I was going to be in sports. I was going to go to Singapore Sports School. But in the end, where did I go? I went to Singapore Art School. <laughs> I went to Sota. Yeah, and that happened because I joined choir purely by accident in P5 or P6. My music teacher um, stopped me in the spiral staircase and forced me to sing after her. The first time she did that, I purposely sang out of tune because I thought choir was super lame. Then the second time, I felt a bit bad for her because I liked her. So I joined choir. So that was my in into Sota through voice. And I mean, I, I, there's many more. Like, I think I'll stop there in yeah. terms of childhood, okay? Yeah. Interesting. Like, I think uh, if we can just kind of go back. So yeah. I think naturally your parents also taught you these songs, right? Like these, these kind of oral traditions and oral law has been passed down from generations from both sides. And you're kind of like the bearer of two very distinct cultures. But I think it's also a very interesting position to be in. Not oftentimes do you feel like you have a culture that's from like Asia, like Southeast Asia, and somewhere very far away like English, uh, like the Scottish and the Irish. And then so w- when you grew up, and I think also I did my research beforehand, and I would love if you can just kind of share how you got involved with music. Because I think you mentioned mm-hmm. in your podcast series with your sister that you learned the song Bintang Kachilv at the age seven. Oh man. Yeah. Could you you just, did your research. I did my research, yeah. yeah. Could you just, I think it's a really lovely story. Can you yeah. just unpack that for us? I was in a new school and it was Malay class and I was always very awkward in Malay class because I didn't grow up speaking a lot of Malay at home. It was mainly English. Mm. So I didn't say much in Malay class, but we had this Cikgu, this teacher, called, her name was Cikgu Siti. The one class I remember participating actively in was when she taught us like two or three Malay songs. So one of them uh, was a song called uh, Bintang Kecil or um, like Small Small Stars. And I remember she asked like, oh, who wants to come up to the front and sing it? And for the first time in Malay class, I put up my hand. And yeah, yeah, that was sort of my, an- a different introduction into like re- regional Malay Indonesian folk songs. Mm. Yeah, so I learned Bintang Kecil from her. I also learned uh, O Bangau, O Bangau, Egret. It's a song about an egret, but it's also about like two things. It's about the ecosystem, mm-hmm. like the food chain, but it's also about the blaming culture. It's, it's an interesting song. Yeah, so th- these were two songs that um, Jake Lucy taught me. I actually have Bangau, O Bangau on my notes as well, because I remember... I like you mentioned these two specific songs mm. and having its own like gateway into music basically. If you can just kind of like transport back yourself back into like the environment of that classroom, right? Where you, you had difficulties connecting to the Malay language because your culture wasn't brought up that way. And what made you feel compelled or drove you to just raise up your hand at age seven? Oh, I mean I love singing. I think I've always loved like 
um, music making because there was a lot of music making going on in the house and informally I think I never liked the formal music lessons um, I really did not like violin I really did not like piano it was so structured um, but I really liked the jamming sessions whether the jamming was um, listening to um, family members on the guitar or just jamming in terms of singing while on the bus or on a road trip somewhere or at home I always liked that sense of community that the jamming built I mean, even today, like, I generally prefer jamming sessions over um, more formal concert settings. Mm. Yeah. Because yeah. yeah. you, you hold jamming sessions at your place, right? Yeah, like, How I often do. is that? Um, well, it's, it's on and off depending on when everyone's free and when I'm free. But yeah, since, um, since university and coming back to Singapore, I have tried to um, jam a lot more with friends. And even now, I play every now and then, uh, every other week at an Irish pub in Singapore called Molly Maloon's. So we, Singapore Trad Collective is there every other Tuesday night. Um, yeah, and it's just fun because uh, it's a process where you learn more by ear and more by listening and there's like no scores. Um, so it's just more organic, yeah. I feel. Mm. I feel like being a multi-instrumentalist. So technically, how, okay, how many instruments can you play first of all? Ah, yikes. Okay, so, um, okay, technically there is the piano in the sense that I am com- comfortable um, accompanying on it and playing things on it. Piano, I have spent the longest time with the guitar. And in terms of the guitar, we're looking at, like, my first guitar was a classical guitar. So I did a lot of, like, fingerstyle classical stuff there. And then I kind of graduated. I think last year I got my uncle gifted me an electric guitar. So that opened me up to a whole different kind of guitar world. Um, and an acoustic guitar as well, which is what I use for the Irish uh, sessions. So that's piano, guitar, um, and then in Sota, I did singing, right? So that's classical singing. Um, and then in Sota as well, I joined percussion ensemble, so I played the marimba. So that opened me up to like Latin American music or West African music mm-hmm. and a whole bunch of other musical cultures. At the same time in Sota, my second instrument was the recorder, which everyone laughs at because they're like, ah, primary school only, white Yamaha. But I've had the greatest respect for the recorder because I've learned in one-on-one lessons at Sota. So I play the descant, which is the one that we all grew up playing. I also play the treble, which is a slightly bigger one. And I also play the tenor. Uh, That's a bit of a stretch on the fingers. So that's that. Piano, guitar, recorder, um, marimba at the time. And then after Sota, I played in the uh, NUS Gamelan Ensemble, Javanese Gamelan. So I did that for a while. And then when I moved to London for my studies, I kept on doing Gamelan, a bit of Balinese Gamelan. And then I also did um, Thai classical music, um, Thai Pipat Ensemble. And then I joined the Kaylee uh, Kaylee group at SOAS. So that was Irish and Scottish music. So I played the guitar and tin whistle there. And lastly, I had a little brief interlude with the Iranian Santur, which is sort of like a Yangting, a Hamid Dalsama from Iran. And I think, I think that's it. I feel like I'm missing something, but I will stick with that. <laughs> it's just a handful. Oh my god! So okay, hold on. So wait, could you just shed a little bit of light on what a pipat is and what a Scottish? How do you pronounce it? Kaylee. Kaylee. See, and no one could ever spell this. C e i l i d h. Okay, so pipat 
um, Thai classical music. Mm -hmm. So in the way that how Indonesia has its gamelan, um, sort of like court music or court, court classical music, Thailand has um, one of the classical musics is uh, something called pipat. So that's sort of like a mixed ensemble, sort of like a gamelan where we've got the bronze things that you beat. So there's konglong ya and konglong lek, which are these round circular things um, and you beat. You also have ranat ek and ranat um, tum, which are like xylophone type things. And then those are the percussion stuff. But then you also have flutes like the klui, which is a Thai flute, sawu and saw duang, I think, which are sort of like fiddles. Yeah. Interesting. So that's Thai pipat and keili. Keili is an interesting word. Keili is not really just a music. Keili kind of refers to a whole party or a whole like gathering of people. And keili refers to the music, Irish and Scottish music being played um, in like a jam setting. But it also refers to like coming together and like hanging out, having a good time, having food and drink. Yeah, so it's more of like an experience and even dancing, lots and lots of dancing. Mm. So it's an experience and a party rather than just like listen to the music. Mm. So would you say yeah. like the jamming sessions at Molly Malone, for example, would be an example of a Kaylee? A Kaylee? Um, well, we don't do dancing there and um, I mean we do like eat and drink and jam a bit but I guess we wouldn't really call that a Kaylee as much because there's no like um, dancing. Normally what happens in a Kaylee is that there's someone out there who calls the dancers so they're like, okay, boys on this side, girls on this side. It's like tons of fun and they're like, okay, so you're going to hold the partner by the hand and swing them round and round and round and, and there's a whole, there's all these steps to it for certain kinds of music. Interesting. Yeah. Did so, you learn that in school? I didn't learn that in school. I learned that so in SOAS we didn't have as many um, dancing sessions but mm. we did have a jam with Cambridge the Cambridge Kaylee um, group mm. and they called the dancers and uh, so I got to be the musician but also be the dancer. So that was that was really fun. You get swung around like tons of times. Did you get dizzy after? Yeah, yeah, it was wonderful. <laughs> it was wonderful. Swept you off your feet yeah. and just literally spinning. It was great. Yeah, the music's so invigorating. No matter how tired I am when I play yeah. that kind of music, I just feel alive. Mm. Yeah. Is there a instrument that you always find yourself going back to? Yes, the guitar. What about the guitar? My relationship with it has been quite up and down. Like I did start, my first guitar was when I was 11, when it was a classical guitar. Um, and I just did a lot of finger style stuff, super amateur, listening to stuff like Frederick Messner on YouTube. And then I didn't really develop from there. So for a long time, since I was like in sec 1, 13, until I was about yeah, 19, 20, I was really playing the same stuff. And I, I was focusing on many other things in my musical life. But the mm. guitar has always just been around as a source of comfort or as a source of songwriting. Mm. Yeah, as a, as a vehicle for me to write songs, yeah. So it was only when I got my electric guitar last year that things opened up for me and I started um, exploring other guitar world. So I'm looking at like math rock. Yvette Young is my all-time favorite um, guitarist. She is this beautiful guitar goddess um, from the US, Chinese-American uh, lady, and just stunning um, because she's so innovative in the guitar. So that opened me up because I realized that um, with the guitar, I could do things called alternate tunings or open tunings. So you, you don't have to stick with what you're given. You can just change the tunings and the whole universe on the guitar just changes and you it, you can fill it with colours by changing the tuning of the strings. So that's what Yvette Young taught me. It can be used in so many different musical cultures. You know, I can bring it to my, my Irish sessions at the pub, but then I can also play solo as like a bedroom musician, lo-fi type stuff. Um, and then I can teach it or, or the sort of the more child-friendly equivalent, the ukulele, in yeah. the music classroom as a teacher. So it's very versatile, and that's why I like it. It's interesting that the guitar is able to 
move along with you through different like transitions and times and phases yeah. even your profession as well like it's, it's just a constant that allows you to be able to explore your creative self yeah I would, yeah exactly and i'm i'm the kind of person who can't stop at one type of music or have one you type tried of to just focus on one specific instrument yes actually so when i when i joined the molly malone sessions the irish sessions at the pub i joined this april so apart from the guitar i also play or try to play the tin whistle um the small one as well as the low one and i really wanted to be good at that um in irish and scottish music Playing the melody is quite tough because it's really fast sometimes and there's lots of like notes and, and it, it, it is tough. Mm. And then it, I was trying really hard getting learning the tunes and then I realised that there's just people who are a lot better at me than it. And what the group needed at the time and now is a decent accompanist. So I just said to myself, look, just put down the whistle for now. Focus on the guitar. Like Focus mm. on being a really good accompanist. Not even a sort like a good comping person on the guitar mm -hmm. and that helped me so much and because I was preparing for a gig um, during, for National Day so leading up to that two weeks just intense just learning how to like palm mute learning how to um, um, play in dadgad which is one of the uh, good tunings for Celtic music um, yeah and it really helped to focus um, do I miss the whistle yeah I miss it a lot but <laughs> but I think I really needed that mm. yeah. it was a tough it was a tough limitation but I had to do it mm. if I wanted to be good at something mm. yeah and I think that's always been my problem that I want to do everything everywhere all at once and in the end great I movie by the way great movie super great movie kind of confusing but great movie same in my life like I want to do everything everywhere all at once and then mm. you end up confused and not knowing like yeah. what exactly did you how did you develop so I've been developing quite horizontally a lot and now I'm really trying to go a little bit deeper mm, instead mm. of that way, other mm. way. Part of your journey in developing horizontally as an artist because there's different ways we can grow. You can, like it's for me with dance, you learn many, many different styles and genres. You can be adequate, I would say, in all of these different styles and genres, but it takes years of like dedication and persistence to be able to go depth vertically wise into something and really gain its knowledge of full potential out of it. I think I've always envied creatives who can go deep because I've never really been someone who does that intuitively. Mm. But then at the same time, especially as a primary school music teacher, I feel there really is value in going horizontally. And I, I think people have to recognize that not everyone can do that. Yeah. Like not everyone can go across genres. Like for example, I have a very good friend who's a violinist in a conservatory um, here. And he's one of the very few classically trained violinists who can also double up as a fiddle player in like, um, whether it's a, a jazz session or whether it's a, a Irish session. A lot of classically trained people can't do that. So I think uh, as much as I've, I, I used to envy people to who go deep, I have learned to accept that I am someone who likes doing so many things at once and that in itself is valuable mm. because when I go into the music room as a teacher that serves my best interest in my profession because I'm teaching all sorts of kids some hate music some love music but they hate and love them because they may not have had the right access point yet so my job then is to provide as many different like avenues and possibilities for them like oh you don't like uh, classical music well how about songwriting or you're not keen in songwriting how about electronic music or you don't like electronic music how about I don't know coding music instead you like you know science and all that so because I'm naturally that kind of person who loves everything about different mm. kinds of music I think the kids have been able to access 
music in the way that they're comfortable with. And for me, that's my whole job, and I feel that's success for me. Mm. Yeah. If I was in the conservatory, then I think I would be doing a very bad job, mm. you know? But I'm not there, and I don't want to be there. Yeah. Yeah. Has your definition of success changed for you as a musician when you first started music to the transition periods and where you are now? Yeah, I think, again, going back to the idea that I wanted to do everything, everywhere, all at once. Mm. Not just that, but I wanted to do it fast. Mm. I'm kind of an impatient person, and I, if I want to get a skill done, I want to get it done fast. Even though we all know that's not the right way to go about things, slow is best. Uh, actually, things changed for me. Like, my idea of success as a musician or a creative mm. person, it changed when I became a teacher. When I became a teacher, there became a lot less time to make art or to make music, and that really bummed me out because I started feeling that my creative soul had started disappearing and that I was becoming this boring like teacher who just taught steady beat and like ch- children's songs every day, all day. Yeah, so what I did, it really got me down for a, long, for a while. Mm. I think halfway through my first year of teaching, um, mental health kind of took a toll because I wasn't feeling creatively nourished. Mm. Um, yeah, so what I did was that I told myself, I just have to pick up the guitar just picking it up is a revolutionary act and I just have to play for 20 minutes and then that's it and I do it every day be consistent so what changed in terms of success is that for me now showing up for your craft is what I think is success like it may not be a good day I mean pick it up and be like really not wanting to pick it up and then the notes I'm this music I made is horrible and I'm thinking oh I'm, I'm a horrible musician but then I have to think to myself I showed up today like mm. I can put a tick there on today because I showed up I did the work, it's not great, but it's done. Yeah, and as compared to before where I needed it to be good, and if it wasn't good, I have to make sure it's good and stay there, and that would take up so much time. Yeah, so, yeah. Interesting. So yeah, so now I have this practice where like, I will pick up the guitar, I will do something creative at least like half an hour at night before I go to sleep. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because it's about the consistency. That, and I didn't used to have this, this um, willingness to be consistent when I was, when I was a bit younger. Mm. But now I'm realizing that every baby step makes a difference. Yeah. Very, yeah, very, very relatable, I would say, to all of the creatives out there. Especially when us as creatives, we're not bound to a specific job. We have to be generalists across many different disciplines. Like, for example, yourself as a music teacher, but you're Mm. also a teacher in charge of a class. You also have to set up the performances, you have to plan, and there's a lot of nitty-gritty stuff that goes into such detail that you didn't learn in school, but you had to kind of just go on the fly and learn on the job along the way. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, don't get restarted about the workload. Bro! (laughs) Yeah, I mean, most people think that being a music teacher is wonderful because you're making music all the time, but that's not the case at all. Mm. I always tell people making music is like 20% of the job. Yeah. Just 20%. And if your class is acting horribly that day, then you don't even like that 20%. Definitely, definitely. Yeah, we'll talk about that 20% uh, later on when we get to the section of debunking certain misconceptions as a primary school music teacher. I think it's very very important because I feel that also part of the reason why I'm doing this podcast is to debunk certain mysteries that are shrouded based on common misconceptions. Mm. Um, because what we see definitely 
on the outside is definitely not what goes on in the process. I think it's important to shed light and educate. So coming back to your time in SOAS, where you studied ethnomusicology, from my understanding, okay, so I had to Google what this meant because it was a mouthful. Correct me if I'm wrong, this is just my definition of what I got off Google. Ethnomusicology is a field of study. In a way, you can kind of refer it to it as a music scholar or music researcher in a way. The study of music in its social and cultural context. Yeah, it's, so, it's always funny because when I was about to go and study ethnomusicology or when I came back to Singapore and told people I study ethnomusicology, very long word, people get terrified of the long word and they're like, oh my gosh, this must be a very niche, very specialized, very complex mm. um, discipline. And the funny thing is, is that if you compare ethnomusicology with normal music studies or musicology, normal I put in quotation marks mm. since this is a podcast, you realize that musicology or your so-called normal music studies is a lot more niche and specific and like like obscure because it's dealing with like European Western art music, right? Classical music mm-hmm. of a certain time period most of the time. Whereas ethnomusicology is really, it kind of started as looking at musical musical cultures outside of one's own culture. This came from a time when there were a lot of like white dudes, old white dudes, who would who would look outside of their own white dude culture to go to exotic places around the world and learn their cultures. Okay, it's like taking a cruise. Yeah, taking a cruise. So it's it's like it's going outside of your own culture. Right. That that sort of where it started, but. Ethnomusicology has really evolved. So so now it's mm. it doesn't have to be outside of your culture and it doesn't just have to be an exotic country or culture with um um you know with interesting instruments. Ethnomusicology could very well be looking at the music of your own community or your own neighborhood or your own CC community center. Um and then we come to the second part of it which is not which means it's not just about the content or the culture whether it's African or Asian or Middle Eastern, but it's about what, how you look at the music, which is you always look at it in the context of society, in terms of culture, in terms of religious or belief systems. You're looking at music as one part of a greater whole. So we're never just looking about analyzing the music, music theory, you know, sounds for sound's sake, but looking at how, how does landscape or how does place um, affect or, or not affect, but how does it shape the music? And, and similarly, how does the music shape the people or the place? Mm. Yeah, so always, it's a, lot more, it's a lot more integrated perspective on music, which is what I was drawn to. Mm. Because I think after six years of studying what I affectionately call dead white man music in Sota, I thought it was time to, to see, see that there was so much more music out there. And I'm not a dead white man, or I'm not an old white man, so where do I fit in in, in all that I've studied, right? So part of studying ethnomusicology was just seeing where my place is in the music world. Yeah. And to feel that my voice mattered in music. Mm. Because all the people I was studying did not look and sound like me. I did not come from my kind of background. So yeah, that's what ethnomusicology is to me. Mm. Mm. Would you say that you were also within the 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 ecosystem of the school? Like, if we're gonna look at percentages of students from Europe versus UK versus other parts of the world, how is the percentage made up in terms of like your 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 batch of course mates? <laughs> yeah, it's funny because the music department was always kind of like the least diverse. And maybe it could be because most people, especially internationals, if they're going to fly all the way and spend all that money to come to a place mm-hmm. like London, it's not cheap. 
you may not be if it's your own money you may not be spending it on music and if you are you're gonna be going to an established conservatory not a place like SOAS where all these hippie people are running around <laughs> no so 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 my my batch is very white it was very white and very local local as in like um, British local mm. with the odd there was me there was an Italian girl uh, there was a Filipino British guy there was um, a black British guy um, but yeah the rest were majority white British Percentage-wise, how what's the percentage of white? Like, I don't know. I mean, the class is very small. I think there was about 22 of us. So there oh, was, that's very small. Yeah, so there was me, there was the Italian girl. Oh, well, she's white. Yeah. So there was me and the, I guess, Filipino, Filipino guy. Yeah. So, like, say, like, five out of the 22 of you. Probably less. Probably oh. even less. Okay. Yeah. It's like, you can count on one hand. Yeah. But there were interesting cases. Like, there was this Indian girl from Glasgow. Oh, yeah. So there was four. <laughs> so you're right, there's five. The ra- the race thing and the culture thing was one thing, but the the white people at SOS are never just your usual white people. <laughs> how 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 would you They come with all sorts of very eccentric backgrounds and musical uh, uh dabblings, mm. you know? And so they're never your your typical um I studied violin or I studied piano for a few years. We had like, you know, jazz singers or electric guitarists or people who um whose grandmother was like half Indian and they wanted to discover more of that part of them. So they may look white on the surface, but they were very colorful inside. <laughs> <laughs> like, That's so ass for you. <laughs> uh, 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 don't don't judge by its exterior. Like the the, the inner parts are just colorful. No, and, and, like and to a, be and to be honest, like in in not just so as, but in a lot of the musical very... groups I've been in, it's been fascinating. For example, I played. Balinese gamelan at another university, city university nearby, um, every like every week on like Wednesday evenings mm. or something, and everyone there was white, and and the guy who led it was this old, lovely uh, old white guy, who, and the thing is, yeah, they're white, but they know so much about. He knew so much about. Sorry, I'm saying Balinese. I meant Sundanese, which is West Java, and he knew so much about West Javanese culture. I mean, way more than, I mean, I I didn't know anything about it, and so. And similarly, when I was in Singapore, and the guy who leads the NUS Gamelan Ensemble, really lovely guy, he's Chinese, right? He's not Indonesian, he's Singaporean Chinese, but his soul, his soul is so Indonesian. He's more comfortable speaking Indonesian and speaking mm. Javanese and speaking Chinese to like Chinese media. And similarly for this guy in, in City University, his soul is so West, Jav- West, West Javanese or also Indonesian. So being in SOAS and studying ethnomusicology sometimes, you know, like, you can look a certain way and you can say, I'm this race. And I think in Singapore, we're so obsessed with about like, oh, you're this race, so you probably play, you're Malay, okay, you must play kompang or accordion or you're Chinese, you probably do this. But I've learned that like, it's, your soul can be totally different from like, what race or what like, culture you are. Yeah. Would you say that your childhood shaped your interest in exploring different cultures and traditions and that's what drew you to take up ethnomusicology in the first place oh for sure like so the i think one very formative experience was that sometimes in primary school during my june or december holidays my mom um at the time she was friends with like this anthropologist or something who would organize like research trips or some sort of trips as a kid i had no idea what i was doing i just followed along so she would bring us to stay with the orang asli or the indigenous people in malaysia um so we would you know take the train up and then we would take like a four-wheel drive all the way into the forest and that was like my holiday my school holiday i would live with them in 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 um you know in, in huts and um 
camp out with them and go to their um, local rituals um, and their local ceremonies. And for me, that was normal. It was never like weird. It was my childhood. So from a very young age, I, I was not just exposed, but I was interacting with all sorts of different cultures and musical cultures. And it was normal for me. And I, it, from a very young age, I understood that there's many different perspectives of the world, even within like the Malay, Singapore, like Southeast Asian region. Yeah, so I think subconsciously, like I just knew that this, this is normal. This is, music is not just you know, um, the, the piano concertos and then the symphonies and the Beethovens of the world. Yeah. There's so much more that music is, you know, that is not in our curriculum. Mm. Yeah. I have a curious question. May sound ignorant, so forgive me on this one. When one thinks about classical music, one thinks about dead white men people music. Mm, mm. So Tchaikovsky, Beethoven, Stravinsky, you know, you, you name it, and the classical, like, the composers, right? Mm. How, or why, rather, I'm curious, has music evolution like? Why is it not able to kind of move past the colonization of these? I think it depends on where you are. I mean, the classical scene is very diverse depending on which, like, country you're in. Mm. I think Singapore is a little bit slow to catch up. So, for example, our image of classical music is very dead white men, but it's really not. Like, I mean, it's just that we're very Ill- ill-informed about mm. classical music's history. I think um, I'm not the best person about this, but what I do know is that, you know, there, there were tons of people way back in, um, oh no, I don't know the decade, but like, you know, way back when there were still black and whites, right? <laughs> was that, 40s? <laughs> the 40s, 30s or 40s, anyway, yeah. there was like, a, for example, there was the first female black classical composer who had her she was the first one to have like a symphony performed or Mm. something like that Florence Price was her name and she had like this amazing um, uh, symphony symphony in E minor something she wrote like amazing music we I did not learn this in school I did not learn about um, I'm forgetting all their names now but there was so many like um, African American or like um, none old white dudes writing classical music there have always been and there still are tons of diverse um, classical composers or neoclassical composers but we do not hear of them um, so when we look at like what's being performed I think Singapore is a little bit far behind in terms of the classical scene and talking about um, uh, presenting a more diverse repertoire because I think at the end of the day um, it's easier to sell tickets if you go with the top favourites it's, it's, a, it's a loop yeah, whereas I do know that the scenes in other places are a lot more diverse. I can relate to it on a creative dance. As a performer, I relate because there will be more audiences going to watch a ballet performance mm. as compared to a contemporary dance performance. But I think it also boils down to several different factors. So, for example, it's the, lack, it's, it's, it's the education from... The, the audiences, whether they are okay with that kind of open-endedness to be able to have the space to really think and form their own thoughts. I think perhaps the thing that Singaporeans are perhaps not so comfortable with that I feel like needs a little, maybe a little bit more time is our, is, is, is the mental freedom to be able to imagine and be curious about other possibilities Supposed, they're supposed to have a right or wrong mm. kind of mindset because a lot of the times, even as education system, right, we grew up learning this is right, this is wrong. If you write a wrong answer in the exam, you get marks deducted 
immediately. So I think the kind of education system definitely shapes the way we think mm. and even in the workforce as well. I think it's 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 a feedback loop, right? And it accumulates. So when you start to watch creative performances, you you get a dilemma because you're like, what am I looking at? Mm. And how how am I how am I relating to this? Mm. So I think a really I think more relevant example which I can give, which I think you can relate. We've talked about this before, was us looking at visual arts, mm. for example. <laughs> so our relation to different art forms as mm. well is also very interesting. How do we find that correlation or the relationship? Could you share also I think, a little bit about your relationship with like the last time we spoke was visual arts? Mm-hmm. So how has that evolved? Yeah, visual arts has always been a tricky uh, art form for me to to really appreciate mm. because I I mean since Sota days like even if it was my friends as visual artists they say come for my exhibition I'm like mm-hmm. sure I would be glad to then I turn up in the beautiful uh, exhibition space the gallery and I look at the artwork I'm like wow that's nice. 10 seconds then I walk to the next one mm. and in my mind I'm feeling so guilty because I know that they've spent like I don't know months at least or yeah. you know a long time working on it making all sorts of creative decisions and then I come along I t- spend just 10 seconds on it and I look away and that's if I'm lucky like maybe I don't I feel a lot of the time I feel quite dumb with certain um, artworks mm. because I don't I, I ask myself what am I supposed to feel with this what am I supposed to get with this so that has been my attitude for a long time but actually um, the attitude's kind of changed um, in the last what in, in, in this year in the last few months because I had uh, a, an art friend who introduced me who, who invited me to this sort of like underground warehouse like art exhibition was like this art sharing and mm. it was like super underground I would never go if not for this person and um, I asked the artist about their works and she said that she thought of her artworks as choreographies mm-hmm. and then there was something that clicked in my mind like whoa wait I can look at art like a choreography and that changed because all this time I had been looking at art pieces as stagnant as uh, just unmoving things that don't make me feel much but then when she said choreography I thought oh so now I'm actually imagining the process of her making it why does she go left why does she go right why does she go thick Mm. here why does she use a different color here why does she use this material Um, and I think the the difficulty accessing a visual arts is that you only see the end product but if you're looking at performances whether it's dance theatre or music you see it being made so you can see those choices you can see the process Mm. and that's what makes you feel like you're taking along taken along on the not just emotions but the whole creative journey Mm. but with art it's like nah there it is please look at it and uh, but that exhibition is very interesting to me Mm. because I started realising oh I'm not just looking at the final product I'm actually seeing how the choreography of the person she had to move and mm. this was the result it could have gone on longer but or it could have gone on it could have stopped earlier yep. but this was it so yeah so then I started seeing parallels with music so I, I was eavesdropping because I was like oh I feel so intimidated in this art space I'm like this drabby music teacher and primary school music teacher and everyone was so like fashionable and artsy wearing all sorts of interesting clothes and tattoos and dyed hair and piercings and I was like anyway so I was like eavesdropping in on the conversations and some of them were like um, I was interested in the questions they were asking the artists mm. like for example 
one question was like, um, oh, what they were so curious, what material did you use or how did you make this material? And for me, I asked my friend, like, why is that an important question? Because it just seemed like a mm. very logistical question and it wasn't about the creative process. But then I thought about it, I was like, well, it's this, if you ask what material do you use, it's the same as in music. You hear, like, if I hear Yvette Young, my favorite guitarist, and I'm like, dang, I love her tone. How is she making that tone? Yeah. You know? And then she's like, she'll probably say, oh, I'm using these pedals, these effects, this, this, uh, this particular guitar, this setup. I want to know that. It's kind of geeking out, but that's, that's tone. So material is tone in music. Similarly, things like, um, um, you know, color, color in art is like harmony in music. Um, lines are a bit like melody and melodic contour in music. So, so and texture as well. Mm -hmm. Texture in art can be texture in music. So I started seeing all these parallels, and I think seeing those connections helped me appreciate visual arts more. Yeah, definitely. But it's but it took a while to come to this realization. <laughs> it's a learning yeah. process. Yeah. yeah, but I think I think with with art, I feel like the beauty is in its process. For me, whenever I look at visual arts, I kind of immerse myself into what the world of that painting or that sculpture would be. Mm. I somehow never... I've not really developed an appreciation, I'm sorry to say this, but f uh, for, like, sculptures. I find sculptures very... Like, I, I don't get it. I, I, it will take some time for me to understand, but painting in itself is a very dynamic process. And I think as... As, as a dancer, as a performer, as a mover, I can kind of put myself in a dynamic process and it makes me feel a certain way. Mm. It's definitely enhanced if I listen to a piece of music and all the more I feel like I'm immersed in that particular mood or a particular mm. texture or quality of the piece. So like, it's interesting how uh, you were kind of redirected to think of a painting as a choreography because mm. it's the same it's the same as like composing it's making creative decisions conscious creative decisions where at the end of the day the audience might not be able to get it like the larger group of mass might not be able to understand but it's how you felt in that particular moment in time that mm. you wanted to share or you wanted to express yeah and i think you just reminded me that like another realization i had was that you don't have to like all the art in the gallery. Mm. Like, I, I don't know why I had this thought that I felt bad. I don't like this art. Oh my gosh, mm. I must be stupid. I don't like this art. Oh my gosh, I must, yeah. I must just really not be able to appreciate. But it's just like, if you're on Spotify or if you're listening to music, you're not going to like, if you like heavy metal, you may not like classical music. Mm. You may not like Thai music, but you would love Irish music. You don't have to like every track on the album and that's okay. And so what's changed for me as well is that now when I walk through a gallery or an art space, I will just unapologetically walk until I feel something with a specific mm. artwork and that's okay. Like, just how we do with Spotify. Skip, 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 skip. Yep. Oh, this sounds nice. Let's hear it. And that's fine. Mm -hmm. Some works resonate with people and some don't. Definitely. That's okay. Yeah. Definitely. I think it's also not a one-size-fit-all kind of thing. We, mm. each, we each have a certain preference. We bring a catalogue of history and preferences and likes and dislikes with us so that so we, we we carry these into a space and we automatically get drawn to something that resonates or speaks with us mm. at that point in time may not be may not may not speak to our creative soul but it was what we needed to see at that time that just drew you in what was the longest time you stood standing in front of a painting yeah man like i i did i did feel this so i went for uh at the national gallery exhibition brought by the national gallery australia of works by um uh, aboriginal artists 
what was it called? Ever Ever Present is the name of the exhibition. It was amazing. I really liked it because none of the artworks made me feel stupid. The artworks felt like connected to something mm. higher or something bigger. And I think a lot of um, Aboriginal artists do look at um, ancestors or or, st- or or creation myths and and also a, a lot of heavy things like a co- colonization and and all sorts of things. So I remember standing in front of what artwork was that? There were a number at the mm. exhibition and I remember being very taken by the fact that I was stopping and looking for a long time. One of them was like this artwork and it had many different panels in it. So like maybe what, I don't know, 40 different squares mm. and each square, the more I looked at it, the more I discovered. So like each square had its own situation going on with like these little characters oh. and it was just fun and i think i only it only caught my eye because i looked at like this description for the children national gallery has like side blurbs and they're like children what can you find what is your favorite mm. square and i was like oh every square is different let's go and look it's like a treasure hunt and then i found my favorite square and um yeah so so that I spent quite a while looking at that because it was like fun you know interesting yeah. yeah I really appreciate artworks that is able to guide its audiences along mm. what was it in that particular square that you were drawn to oh, it was just so hilarious like the, 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 it was so cartoonish that particular one it was like pulling a weird face it was just like the, the characters were just so amusing <laughs> to look at and the more I looked the more I was like and then I thought well it makes me feel like funny and hilarious inside then I, then I thought, okay, like, what exactly is this artist doing, mm. stroke-wise or like art-wise, to make me feel that way? Yeah. I mean, it's just like ink on a paper or whatever. So how is this person making me feel that? And that's why I stood at it so long, going like, oh, I see the lines going there. Like, if mm. I were to draw it myself, like, how would I do it? And I think by positioning myself as the artist and actually like going through the chore- choreography myself, that made it more interesting for me because I was no longer like the audience looking. Mm. I had become the creator. And I think that's what makes it fun now. When I go into galleries, I'm like, oh, how would I do that? Let's try. Slash, slash, slash. Definitely. Like, yeah. it's, it's like me putting myself in the shoes of a musician. Like, how would I play a certain chord mm. or a certain note? And how, what is the expression? Like, even, a, even a, the letters, like the note C, that if you just press on it versus gently tapping it, you get a different tonality, you get different textures. The, e- even the way you feel mm. playing it versus also receiving it is mm. very different as well. How playful can you get with your music? Like you can choose an instrument, mm-hmm. like it can be a guitar, it can be piano, it can be voice. How, like what was the most playful experience you've ever had? Oh, with the children. Always with the children. Mm. So like I'm exploring this um, uh, framework called Studio Habits of Mind, mm. which is like trying, it's actually started from the visual arts classroom community. How to get uh, children, whether primary school or secondary school, how to get them thinking like an artist. So not just producing the art, the final product, but what are the processes, the creative processes that an uh, an uh, like an art, a real artist, real meaning adult, like, like a real artist has, and how can children think like an artist? How can we treat our children as young artists? Yeah, so I was exploring this framework, but in the music classroom, and so the way that I explored it was they were learning the ukulele. So normally, what happens with the ukulele? Classic. It's like this. North Korean style they're all sitting in rows and then masturbating very military style everyone you put your finger third finger wiggle your third because they don't know which is left and right 
pinky next to your pinky your ring finger wiggle 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 put it on the a string put it on the first fret second fret third fret that is your c chord echo after me strum 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 and it's like this mess thing it's horrible but i do it a lot yeah it's unfortunate that i do it so i thought how can i break out of this um, north korean mm. style of teaching and then i uh, came across this framework so i thought okay, let's let them play and let's let them come up with things um on the ukulele so i said they, they all they can play is a C major chord, right? But I was like, okay, let's just give it a go. So I said that, okay, we're going to create a feeling of a spider, okay? Um, how would you create your feeling of a spider on the ukulele? So you give them limitations first, because otherwise yes. if you don't give them limitations, they just Yes, they, they go ham. They, they just yeah. run so wild. So I said, okay, let's just use the open strings. Open strings meaning grandma can't eat aliens, I call them. It's like G-C-E-A, the strings on the ukulele. Grandma can't eat aliens. Yeah, yeah that's how they remember what? the names of the strings. <laughs> oh, goats can't eat apples, but I prefer the aliens like yeah, so yeah, so uh, so, so they had to come up with ways to use Grandma Can't Eat Aliens to make a spi- spider sound. And I had so much fun because like for me, I was just thinking like ding thong, ding thong, like a creepy spider. Yeah. But the kids were amazing. They came up with like so many interesting techniques that I would never teach them in music class. Mm. But they came up with purely on their own, just by discovering. Or like another thing was like, oh, how can you use the back of the ukulele, the tapping part, the wooden part, to make a ukulele? And they had these amazing rhythms. And so I had so much fun. That was like so much play um, and so much creative work mm. on the ukulele. And I, I would not have come to that if not for the kids' ideas. Mm. Yeah. How did you come across Active Studio of uh, Mind? Studio Habits of Mind. Uh, studio Habits of Mind, no, yeah. I mean, well, I came across it through different... Um, in different parts of my life. So I think the first time I was introduced to it was by a colleague when I was studying at NIE. Um, he was like my ally. He uh, had similar like weird ideas um, with me. So he told me about Studio Habits of Mine. It's part of Harvard's um, Project Zero, I think. Yeah, so it's basically part of this whole like making thinking visible. Um, uh, like how do we encourage students to not just like do good work but actually be aware of their thought processes mm. yeah so that that's a part of a bigger thing but I looked at it I was like oh that's interesting but I never came back to it it was only at work um, every week um, the two art teachers and me the music teacher we have um, weekly meetings so we were working on um, a common issue a in art and music, something we wanted to address. And the issue this year that we wanted to address was that the kids had trouble expressing their creativity. In the art classroom, they would often copy, just copy the template of the teacher, but mm. the teacher didn't feel that their creative voice was coming out. Similarly for music, it was on my part, it was my fault as well. Like I was designing lessons where I was teaching them chords and all they did was like accompany a pop song with those chords, which was very boring and didn't um, allow them much creative thinking. Mm. So we both, art and music teachers, wanted to find ways to address this issue of how can we let the creative artistic voice of the our young artists come alive. So one of my colleagues um, introduced Studio Habits of Mine and I had heard of it but this was uh, a second reminder and I was like, oh man, she gave like 199 slides and I was like, but they were all so good, I read them all. Oh my and I realised that this is something I'm really interested in. Yeah, so I'm currently finishing up this presentation for the school about how we can use Studio Habits of Mind, which was originally designed for the visual art classroom. And then I'm going to show them how I applied it in the music classroom. But I also want to show them how you can use it in science and maths and English. How does thinking like an artist, using certain artistic dispositions, and we're not just talking about arts. For example, the dispositions, there's eight of them, eight Studio Habits of Mind. Off the top of my head, I can remember things like observe, 
So in art, it's looking, but for music, I call it listen. Mm. There's things like um, understanding the art world, so the, uh, understanding art history and artists. For me, I call it meeting musicians, how meeting different types of musicians can help you grow. Mm. Uh, or like reflect, for example, how reflection makes you a better artist. Mm. Things like stick with it or persevere. Once you have the idea, how do you keep going with it? Mm. So all these different dispositions are not just specific to like the arts. How could science or maths teachers use it to help nurture students to become young scientists mm. or young writers? or young mathematicians, you know? So that's the presentation I'm working on during my holidays. It sounds really interesting. It is. I, I have to admit, I'm not there yet. Like, I'm, I'm just scratching the surface, but yeah. I am super interested in this, and I want to do more of it. In my experience of encountering young students as well, who are also discovering what their creative voice is, I feel like it's a very relevant framework. I think it's also very re revolutionary in a way mm. as well, thinking like an artist, because oftentimes, perhaps this is an education system over here as well, there isn't much room or space, wiggle space, to think outside of the box. And even if you think outside of the box, it's still within the box, mm. right? So there's only so many boxes that you can kind of think out of. Mm. But I think thinking like an artist just promotes more critical thinking promotes different you know your five senses heightening your five senses and how does it make you feel so there's also a level of reflection mm. and uh, analysis into it as well mm. what is useful about this for me as a teacher in a school where i'm the only one really advocating yes. for my subject music it shows that there is a lot more to the arts that is not just the final product. Like people just see, ah, music teacher, come, we need to put together a performance. Can you get them, force them to sing this um, NDP song, uh, wave their hands yeah. a bit. You know, that's what they know. But what we as artists want to show them is that, look, that's the final product. But getting there, there are many artistic processes that you don't see hidden curriculum, like hidden thinking. There is as much critical thinking in the arts as there is in science and maths and, mm. and, and your so-called academic subjects. So this is a, I love this framework because it's giving me the vocabulary to show other subject teachers that look, there is a lot going on to be an artist. Mm. You cannot anyhow. Yeah, it yeah. looks anyhow, but there's a lot going on. Yeah. We just don't talk about it. Yeah. There's, there's a certain rigour yeah. and discipline and process that goes into a creative process. Yeah. And when they play, yeah. they're not just playing, they're, they're developing, they're, correct, they're exploring and that's part of it. Yeah, yeah definitely. Mm. It, it's, it's definitely a great bridge to, mm. to connect the different uh, worlds together, I would say. I feel mm. like a lot of creatives, perhaps if you're hearing this, you might feel heard or seen. So this is a wrap of my conversation with Almira and this is only part one. Do check out for part two coming to you soon where we talk about the misconceptions of being a primary school music teacher and many more. Stay tuned.